Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we've been looking at this chapter. We've seen Paul drawing conclusions from all that he's been outlining from chapter 1 about this great gospel that God has committed to us, this wonderful good news, God's exciting announcement about his son. Paul has been unfolding it, uh, and then he comes to uh, verse 31. He says, what shall we say in response to it all? And he fires out some questions, five questions, uh, and gives confident answers to them. But it's helpful Uh, as we go through something like this slowly, to take our bearings from time to time and remind ourselves where it's all coming from, where it's all heading. Back in chapter 1, back in chapter 1, Paul gives us an insight into what really motivates him. In verse 11, he says, I long to see you, he says to the people in Rome, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That's his motivation, to make people strong. And all the truth that he's been unfolding and reveling in in these chapters all have that motivation so that people should be made strong. And I want us to look this morning at verse 34 particularly. We started to look at it last week, but I want us to look at the second half of the verse. Just read the verse again. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? We were looking at it last week, but I want us to look particularly at those great statements about where Jesus is now and what he is doing now. So I was so encouraged, knowing what I was going to be speaking on, to have Ginny come here and draw the emphasis and focus on now, what's, what's true now, what applies now, what is possible now. And I want us to look, I felt God was leading me uh, to, for us to look at where Jesus is now and what he is doing now. He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul's motivation is to make us strong. If we're going to have secure foundations We're going to put down roots so that we're able to stand when everything shakes as it surely will. We're going to have good foundations. The paradox is, to have good foundations, you need to look up. To put down roots, you need to look up. We need to see where Jesus is now and what he is doing now. 
we're confident in that, that makes us strong. And that's Paul's motivation. So where is he now? Well, he is at the right hand of God, he says. Now, he misses out a word there, actually, that generally speaking, uh, he uses elsewhere and other passages slip that word in. If you look in Mark chapter 16, for example, Mark chapter 16, the, right at the end of, that, uh, of, of Mark's gospel, Mark 16 and verse 19, it says, After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And Paul here, in shorthand, he just says, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. Well, elsewhere it says he's seated there. He sat at the right hand of God. Writing to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What's he doing now? Where is he now? Well, he is seated. He is seated at God's right hand. The writer to the Hebrews, right through his letter, has a lot to say about this. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And again in chapter 12 in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do they keep drawing attention to the fact that he is not just at God's right hand, but that he is sitting there? Well, for a very good reason. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, that reason is brought out clearly. In Hebrews 10 and verse 11, referring to priests and the Old Covenant in the Old Testament before Jesus came, In Hebrews 10, verse 11, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the writer there looks at the priests under the old covenant and the thing about them was they couldn't sit down. They stood and performed duties again and again. They, they couldn't sit down because their work was never over because the sacrifices that they were offering couldn't really deal with sin. And so, again and again, offering sacrifices, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They couldn't sit down, they were so busy. But this priest offers one sacrifice and sits down. Because it never needs to be done again. Nothing further needs to be added. 
This is perfect. You sit down when your job is finished. And Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The work is complete, finished. Nothing needs to be added. He never needs to stand up again to put any finishing touches to it. What Jesus did in his death on our behalf on the cross is complete. He left his father's side. He was always at his father's right hand. He left his father's side. He came down to earth and became a human being came into human form, a real human being. He lived sinlessly as a man. He took our place in a horrific, heroic death. He died sacrificially, substitutionally. In our place, he died. On the third day, he rose again. After 40 days, he ascended to heaven and sat down sat down. It's finished. He's done it. Started at his father's right hand. Came and he did that. And now he came back. You can't even imagine him folding his arms. (laughs) Sat down. It's done. Salvation is complete. He doesn't need to add anything to it. We don't need to add anything to it. It is done. We can be totally sure of our salvation. The moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we repent of our sins, we believe in what he did on the cross, and we accept salvation, the free gift of God's amazing grace, we are saved. We are coming into that finished work. He sat down. Nothing to be added, nothing further to be done. We are justified, we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God forever. One sacrifice forever. He has made perfect those who are being made holy. So, where is he now? Well, he sat down, and more particularly, sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the place of power. The hand of God is a place of power, but particularly the right hand. I discovered a short time ago, that there is a new version of the Bible, an inclusive language version of the Bible, that aims to be, what it says, inclusive. And so they have got rid of that expression, the right hand of God, in case it offends the left-handed. Well, I'm sorry about that if you are left-handed, but Jesus sat at the right hand of God, and that is the place of power, that is the place of authority. And really, Paul is building on a psalm that is the most quoted in the New Testament, and that is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the place of power, the place of authority. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing in the day day of battle and so on. The place of supreme authority. That is where Jesus is. 
And so, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching to the crowd that gathered, he tells the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then, in Acts 2 and uh, verse 33... Acts 2.33, he says, at verse 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's a place of being exalted. It's a place of total authority. Jesus is supreme. He is no longer the man of sorrows, He's no longer despised and rejected. He is no longer a victim. He is now at a place of supreme authority. He, he's been exalted. You remember what, how Paul gives that wonderful poem. We don't know if he wrote it himself or if he borrowed it, if it's something that people already knew. But anyway, he includes it in Philippians chapter 2. I prefer to think he wrote it himself, but really... It's God's Word anyway. But Philippians 2, verse 9, he uh, speaks about Jesus becoming a a, a man. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and so on. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He's no longer the victim. He's no longer despised and rejected. If people today have any idea of Jesus, generally, I don't mean people who are Christians, I mean generally in society, if people have got any idea of Jesus, they prefer to think of him as someone who is, as it were, to be pitied. He's the victim of injustice. He's the one who suffered a wonderful martyr. People might even be prepared to see him like that. But if there's any awareness of him, it's kind of a gentle Jesus who suffered a cruel death. A Jesus that you can feel sorry for. And we like to put Jesus in that category, same as we like to bring God down to a human level, because if we can feel more in control and, and that's what humanity does with Jesus. Do you remember, as Jesus is going to the cross, there are people weeping. And he turns and says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He's not the object of pity. Yes, despised and rejected, he surely was. And dying in our place. But now, exalted, not the victim, but the victor. He has won, and he is in a place of supreme, supreme authority. Another psalm that is quoted often in the New Testament is the second one. And in Psalm 2, it speaks of people conspiring against God, rebelling against God. And it says, the nations conspire, the people plot in vain. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. You are my son. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them with an iron scepter. He's not the victim anymore. 
He's not someone to feel sorry for, but he's in the place of supreme authority. His position is absolutely supreme, absolutely secure. He is the Lord, which is why, as he said farewell to his disciples before he ascended, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go. We need to recognize where he is. If we want to be strong, we need to look up and see our Savior is no longer to be pitied. He's no longer vulnerable. He is in seated at the right hand of God. Jesus prepared his disciples, although they generally didn't understand anything that he was saying, but he prepared them for his departure. He prepared them for his death. And in John 12, verse 31, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Of course, they didn't understand. But he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, referring presumably to his crucifixion, but beyond that, referring to being lifted up from the earth, he said, then I will draw all men to myself. Why? Because the prince of this world driven out. He, Jesus, is in the place of supreme authority because he's beaten the devil, because he's bound the devil, because Jesus is Lord and no one else is Lord. A battle took place there at the cross, and Jesus won. By his resurrection, he is supreme. He says, now the prince of this world will be driven out When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If we've got a weak Jesus, we have a view of Jesus where he is to be pitied, then we have a weak gospel. Then we have a weak church life. Then we bewail the the obstinacy of people around, the blindness of people around, or whatever, and we feel we can't really make too many inroads. We must be satisfied with the kind of number we've got because, well, people are so hostile. People are so indifferent. So much apathy. How can we make inroads? You've got a weak Jesus, you've got a weak gospel, and you've got weak expectations. But we haven't got a weak Jesus. He is seated at God's right hand. And he said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Do you get something of the power? Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go, make disciples of all nations. In in telling them to go, he first of all tells them of his supreme authority. They've not got a weak message. Paul delights in Romans in the message he's got. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not a pathetic message about a pathetic Jesus who got killed. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. If we look up and see where Jesus is, he's seated. He's not stressed. He's not on the go all the time trying to make things work. He is seated. Absolutely secure. 
absolutely supreme, and he's at the right hand of God. There is no higher place than that, and he's our Savior. He's the one who says that we're in him, and he has given his spirit to be in us. Satan is defeated. The outcome of the battle is not in the future, it has happened. And therefore, people can be saved. Let's be very clear on that. Stubborn people can change. Look who's writing this letter to the Romans. You don't get people more stubborn than Saul of Tarsus. His mind was totally made up, and he was absolutely sure that this whole message about Jesus Christ was blasphemy, heresy, had to be stamped out. His mind was made up. And then the power of God came to him, changed his life, changed his mind, changed everything about him. This gospel is powerful because of where Jesus is. We need to be clear. He's supreme. And therefore, people can be saved. The church will be built. Large numbers, vast numbers must come. This whole thing is not destined to kind of trickle away into the history books. He's at the right hand of God, seated there. He's not worried. He's not fretting. How's this going to work? Seated there, seated there. Because he's one and he's powerful. And all that's necessary is that his people lift up their eyes, see where he is. That's our Savior. When we're talking to that stubborn person who doesn't want to know things, hey, you don't realize God's power can change you. When we see people who are just mocking and totally indifferent, let's be confident in this gospel. It's not our persuasive ability. It's his power. It's where he is, his position. So success for what Jesus came to do is totally assured. The outcome is never in question. And because of where he is, he's worthy of our total commitment. He's worthy of our total respect. He's worthy of our total worship. There's no one so worthy as him. He's not... We don't offer him half-hearted worship. We don't come to him with half-hearted commitment. We don't have our minds full of all sorts of other things and we kind of nod in his direction. We need to see where he is. His position challenges my use of time. His position challenges my use of my money. His position challenges everything because of where he is. He's worthy of everything. Someone put a a quote on Facebook this week about Hudson Taylor. I don't know if any of you saw it. I don't know if any of you um, have that on yours. But just a reference to Hudson Taylor saying something like this in his journal. Had a free afternoon, so gave myself to prayer. Hmm. Here we are in the midst of all these bank holidays. A lot of free afternoons for many people. What do you give yourself to? There's a man, his commitment's to God. Got a free afternoon. I'll sit at the computer. No, no, no. Well, you didn't have one. Free afternoon. Give myself to prayer. 
I've been reminded recently also, again through Facebook, Facebook can either distract or can help, but again, I'm reminded of, of C.T. Studd. Started dipping into his story again. See, total commitment. Jesus Christ is God, gave himself for me. Then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. He's worthy. He's worthy of total commitment, total confidence. He empowers our, our gospel, and he also changes our lives. He's seated at the right hand of God. Do you cut your Jesus down to size? Has he become kind of manageable? That you can cope with life and there's Jesus. It's all your family commitments and all your interests, all your hobbies, and then there's Jesus. Does he take over? Someone once said he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. If he is where he is, he's worthy of everything. And he empowers us Say so we're confident in him, absolutely confident in him. We're confident in this so-called foolish message. It's God's power, changes lives, sets people free. He's worthy of total commitment and total faith. That's where he is. He's seated at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. Again, the background is in the Old Testament, Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 28, Exodus 28 and verse 9, uh, sort of passage that maybe if this was in your daily reading, you'd sort of think, ho-hum, what's all this about? It's about the ephod. You think, oh, terrific. Well, yes. Exodus 28 and verse 9, Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. And then it goes on to speak about gold, filigree settings, and so on. Fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Then verse 29, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastplate of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. The priest, the high priest, going into the holiest of all once a year, bears on him the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. As he comes to that place of atonement, he is bearing the names of the people there once a year. Jesus has replaced all of that. And Jesus has come not into the holiest place of the temple, but to the right hand of God. And he's there as our representative. He hasn't got names engraved on an ephod. We're in him. We're in him. He's our representative because we're in him. The scripture says we're seated with him in heavenly places. He bears your name. He bears my name there into the place of God's presence. 
And the high priest goes in once a year and comes out again, but he's there forever. Jesus is there forever. You are represented there in heaven forever. He's interceding for us, not that he has to say anything, but he's there to represent us. The Father only has to look at the Son, and there you are, represented. You are there at the Father's right hand in Jesus. The Father only has to look at the wounds in his Son's hands. There is the plea for you. There is the plea that says, you are forgiven. Your sin is dealt with. The punishment has happened. It's evident there in his Son, who is seated at his right side. So I'm going that side. It's that side. He's seated at, at his right, right side. His very presence is the intercession because he represents us. He bears your name. He carries who you are into God's presence. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. Hebrews 7, verse 24. It says, Jesus lives for, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The high priest going in and out once a year, but Jesus lives forever to intercede for you. Our salvation is guaranteed by his eternal position. He's there on our behalf. He is not moving from there. The Father has only to look at his Son for us to be safe. His substitutionary wounds always visible. Our salvation secure in him. We are saved forever because of this wonderful, wonderful Jesus. And so we were looking last week at the early part of this verse in uh, Romans chapter 8, and we saw there are two voices. There's the accuser. Who is he that condemns? Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? Yes, there's the accuser. We saw last week that he prowls around restlessly like a roaring lion. He is never satisfied. He's accusing relentlessly, continuously. He's always on the go. He never sits down. He's always active. The accuser continually accusing you in your conscience, accusing you through other people, and if he could, accusing you before God. He never gives up, and he never stops. He never sits down. But we've also got an advocate with the Father, and he sits down. The job is done. It's done. The accusations can come, but they don't affect the issue. Jesus has sat down. There's an accuser. There's an advocate. The accuser, perpetually active. The advocate, seated. His position as glorified Savior says it all. We're saved. We're saved. And not just that, but he's supreme. He's mighty. And he's seated waiting till his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And one day he's coming back. And he's coming back in glory. It's clear it will happen because of who he is. Our confidence, when things shake, and Paul is writing here to people in Rome, 
the emperor Nero, persecuting Christians, terrible things were yet going to happen. Paul wouldn't know what was going to happen, but he's writing to a church in Rome, and he's writing so much about suffering. He's writing so much about things that can appear to come between us and the love of God. And he's saying, no, look up, look up. Put your roots down by looking up. I want to make you strong. See where Jesus is. He is supreme. Whatever shakes around us, whatever dreams collapse, whatever hopes come to nothing, Jesus is supreme. That's where we're anchored. That's where we're rooted. He's seated at the right hand of God. The accusations can assail our ears and our conscience. No, Jesus is there seated at the right hand of God. What do you feed your mind on? What are you sure of? What do you feed your spirit on? What shapes your values? What has your allegiance and your commitment? What shapes your priorities? What stabilizes you when everything shakes? Where does your future lie? For Paul, the answer to all of those things is Jesus. Jesus. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What a wonderful message, because it's a wonderful Savior, and he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our commitment. He's worthy of our preoccupation. And he holds us whatever life throws at us. Let's pray.